Hello. Hello. Persuasion. We're just diving right in. Can we can we start with Persuasion, which is a film released recently? With, it sure uh, is. It sure is a film, Jeff. With uh, with the Dakota Johnson, um, and based on the Mary Graham Roddy. Welcome to the podcast, as Hello. always. Hi. This is Romance Part Two. Woo. You're listening to A Little Too Quiet. It's the Ferndale Library Podcast. It is brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. And we're back again to, you know, it's been a while since we talked romance. <laughs> I believe romance was y'all's first episode. It, Together. It was my first episode ever. And you've been on about 97 episodes since then. Absolutely. We're finally back to the origin <laughs> story. And uh, yeah, I think, but I think also persuasion is like really compelled us to finally get to romance part two. Yes. It was the inciting. Jeff was like, stop talking until I can put a microphone in front of you. <laughs> yes. yes. To be clear. Yes, we are talking about the latest Netflix adaptation, as Jeff just said. Mm-hmm. But we are not talking about it in terms of casting. Uh, to be clear, that is not our issue. Sure. We are talking about it in terms of writing an adaptation and adaptation and bad adaptation remember what i said before about adaptations they should not happen and this is why it is when you take jane austen's most adult romance and what i mean by that is just the themes the characters everything about it is so mature and not that you can't have fun with it but these characters have a lot of gravitas to themselves and also the relationship that they had before yeah those people are grown yeah they're grown exactly and this isn't how do i want to put this this is not a lizzie bennett situation this is not an emma situation these characters yes i said that on purpose these characters indeed really really stand on their own where you should not try to characterize them as other Jane Austen characters and unfortunately what has been done is that a movie set during what I I think they still said it during the Regency yeah I mean you have to has Wentworth's occupation right has grown people referring to one another as exes which is uh it feels like a small thing, but like, here's my deal. And I, I, in the interest of full disclosure, dear listener, I will confess, I have not watched this movie because I don't like hate watching things and but, I simply cannot bring myself to do it. But you've heard things from, from the Austin Galaxy, right? I've heard things from the Austin Galaxy and uh, people I trust in Austin land who have seen it. And... I actually think this is part of a broader pattern with film adaptations of Austen's work. What gets adapted all the time? It's Emma and it's Pride mm-hmm. and Prejudice. And even though Jane Austen wrote when she had finished Emma that she'd written a heroine who no one but herself would like, she was wrong. Emma's great. Right. And and just a compelling character in part because like she's out there. She says what's on her mind and she controls a lot of things. Like she's mm-hmm. a very strong personality. Right. And love her or hate her, she's there. Mm-hmm. And Elizabeth Bennett and Emma Woodhouse are two sort of talkative, bold heroine types mm-hmm. that have continued to translate very well into the 21st century. That's the kind of woman we like to read stories about. How many times has Mansfield Park been adapted? Once. How many times has it been adapted well? <laughs> Not Zero. really. Um, and Fanny is even quieter than Anne. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we have more adaptations of Persuasion. And I think the 1995 version, which I rewatched recently just to make sure it still had up, Amanda Root is just transcendent and does such a good job of showing this woman who's, like, emotionally been through the ringer. You know, she got her heart broken when she was 19 and she's not outspoken. Her family walks all over her. Mm-hmm. And... She's just sort of decided that the best way to be able to carry on is to hunker down and let it happen. And the book is this sort of beautiful, just like watching her come into this second blossoming of realizing that like it it doesn't have to be like that. Mm -hmm. And that's partially because she meets Wentworth again, but also meets his sister, who Mm -hmm. she thinks is awesome. Mm -hmm. And just other people who expand her circle and like notice that she is important. And 
you're not going to get that from a bad flea bagification. Right. Of like they've they've that's not the novel. That's not the core of the novel. And women who are quiet and not outspoken proto-feminists mm-hmm. deserve stories. Right. And Jane Austen, that was the great thing. None of her heroines are like, you can't mistake any of them for anyone else. I mean, even in a book like Sense and Sensibility, she was like, here you have two sisters who are so obviously, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just just totally different people. Or honestly, how many times does Northanger Abbey get adapted? It has one. Yeah. And that's because Catherine Morland, I love her. She's a silly 17-year-old girl. And <laughs> people, I guess, don't want to watch a lot of honestly. adaptations of like... A 17-year-old girl who is frequently wrong, but also consistently right. Okay, because, listen, if Sense and Sensibility were only about Marianne, we would probably only have one adaptation of that, too. Yeah. But here's the thing. Or only about Eleanor. If it was only about either of them. Yeah, Because Marianne's true. too histrionic and Eleanor's too mm. shut down. That's fair. If it's, yeah. you know, it, it, I don't actually believe this, but by the but, sort of broad... What we're talking about is a confluence of tropes. Yes, and in, yeah. Also, the the Anya Anna Taylor Joy Emma movie was a big hit. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that had its own vibe. Uh, we're also living in a post Fleabag, post Deadpool world where we like fourth wall breaks a lot. Yeah, and <sighs> we like anachronisms a lot now. So let's throw that in and let's go back to the to the well and try to make. That Emma magic well, that we had two years ago. Here's the thing. and Because every Jane Austen heroine is interchangeable. And can, right. And you here's it. This is. A, okay. Maybe I'm going to rant for just like a second here. Because I don't really want. I'm sure that someone listening to this will watch the Persuasion adaptation and really enjoy it. And I know that for some people, this might be their first foray into Austen. In which case. Hello, welcome. I am happy that you're here. My criticism is not coming from a place of not wanting people to also love Jane Austen. I just have issues with this particular one because I feel like (laughs) there's this, I mean, we've talked about the girl bossification of literally everything before in which, in my opinion, just to like start talking about ideas and things like that, I feel like it has done something to where people are like, okay, the only way to portray a feminist icon is to girl boss the hell out of her. And it's just like, no, that's, that's not yeah. the way to necessarily do it. And then Emma, for example, spawned one of the greatest Jane Austen adaptations of all time. Clueless. Clueless. Literally. One of the greatest adaptations of all time. And there were a lot of people trying to compare this to Clueless. And I see why you might want to do that. But the thing about it is that Clueless never pretended to be anything other than a bunch of wealthy teenagers. I think it's actually set in California. Maybe I'm projecting. That sounds right. Yes, it is. Yes, it's an adaptation, but it's not like, oh, we're going to take these personalities and interpose them on Regency (laughs) England. It is like, no, they are 100% within the time. They are going to argue about Mel Gibson's Hamlet. Which is a nice touch. Yeah, Yeah. like they're going to have these moments that 100% put you into the setting. Paul Rudd dancing to ska music. Yes. Which is what I come here for. That is not... What is happening here? No. It is like we are going to take this 2022 personality mm-hmm. or personality archetype that's very popular now, and we are going to interpose it onto Regency England. And those two things don't mesh. It's like adaptation made by algorithm. Yes. And what what separates that from both Clueless and the 2020 version of Emma, which is one of my favorite films, hands down, and I love listening to the commentary with the director because that was a film full of people who understood the material they were adapting and just adored it mm-hmm. and had 
a grand time putting a lot of intentionality into that film. And the same thing with Clueless. Like the reason Clueless works as just a stunning adaptation is that it takes a story that works well in one time with one set of social mores. Mm -hmm. It's so hard to transfer Regency England social structures mm -hmm. into an adaptation not set there. Mm -hmm. And it picked a story that translates really well to the social structures of mm -hmm. rich teenagers in right. late 90s California. Right. And I mean, yes, the... Clueless follows Emma almost plot point for plot point. Mm -hmm. But it the reason it's so brilliant is that it's it it completely it doesn't try to do that in the Regency. It says we're not, you know, we're not putting valley girls in 1800s dresses. Mm -hmm. We're putting them in short skirts in the 90s where they come from. And it it's to me thoughtless adaptation trying to make a buck mm -hmm. and that makes me sad and perhaps and, distracts from the overall romance right. just the pure romance of it all because i feel like there's always this issue of like how do we make these characters relatable right. to today's audience right. which is a valid question well actually, and there are ways to do that I okay to be clear already a relatable character mm -hmm. already there are ways to add sort of like lightness and levity and things like that to these adaptations without as we both said just like putting these people into regency clothing and just doing that i don't know i just i didn't really feel the romance right as because, you said. It's, because it's style over substance well, yes i even think i there's a very famous um well, it's famous to me because I read it a bunch. I think it's an article in the New York Times that uh, after Ira Glass back in the early, mid-20-teens saw John Lithgow as King Lear in Shakespeare in the Park in New York, he tweeted something about like, sorry, like Lithgow was great, but Lear's just not relatable. And mm -hmm. somebody replied, does it have to be? Like, mm -hmm. do, you, do you, Ira Glass, have to be able to relate to an old king who's possibly losing his mind and wandering on the moors? Right. Why do we have to have self-identification with everything? Right. That's and this is also, frankly, a criticism that, like, gets leveled at a lot of, oh, like, black, brown, queer authors who sure. get their manuscripts rejected sure. by big publishing houses as they're like, well, you know, we have white editors saying, well, it's not relatable. Mm -hmm. oh, well, you don't have to relate to it. You know? it. Not everything is for everyone, and you can also just enjoy a story... Because you because the characters are compelling, not because you identify with any of them. That is so true. And is... but but also like yes, I find persuasion to be a absolutely swoony romance, sure. especially given the fact that Wentworth and Anne spend very little time together. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like Emma and Knightley who are constantly in the same room. And I actually read persuasion. I reread persuasion right at the start of the pandemic and lockdown mm -hmm. because I hadn't read it in years and I was like well it's Austin it'll help and I need to see if it's really all that and the book really is all that right and so it's also to me just like the extra sadness of taking a beautiful piece of source material mm. you know it's like a beautiful cut of meat and then just ruining it <laughs> by preparing well it poorly <laughs> um, as the French would say the cow didn't give its life so that you could right you know Right. There, um, there might be something there too meal. that there that there is a compulsion to add the style and the flash to it mm -hmm. because it may or may not be relatable. People don't trust their audience. I just keep oh, thinking. Oh no! I just keep thinking. Did this is a dated reference? I don't know if you guys are going to get it. It did. Uh, did Sofia Coppola get me to watch a movie about Marie Antoinette uh -huh. mm -hmm. because she put punk rock music into it? You know what I mean? Yes. And so. Oh, I'm saying yes, like, right. in terms of that question. This feels like a little bit of that happening again. Well, Also, stories about women. Do we have to make them splashy and stylized in order to get right, me because, and Ira Glass to care? Which, you know, arguably one shouldn't. Right. Yeah. And, right. yeah, I love what you say about trusting the audience. Because when I yes. think of all of my favorite TV shows, Leverage, Black Sales, those those creators were very explicit about 
you got to watch this with your brain turned on in both eyes. Mm-hmm. And we're going to trust you because you're here. I, I haven't seen Sandman that just was just released on Netflix, mm-hmm. but I'm hearing rave things. And one of the rave things I'm hearing from people who love the graphic novels, which I haven't read, is that they trust the audience. Uh, 100%. Okay. And Can concur. And yes. I, I felt that was also true of the 2020 version of Emma, which I think is a great example of how you can. I just I couldn't stop laughing when I first saw that film in theaters. I think it's immensely funny. And I think a lot of the humor comes not from fourth wall breaks. You don't have mm. to be like really winky, but like Anya Taylor-Joy has these thousand micro expressions that she makes. Yeah, She doesn't have to roll her eyes. She just sort of twitches one of her eyebrows. And I'm like, that's the funniest thing yep. I've ever seen. And so I mean- Subtlety. It's right. subtlety. And, and that's trusting your audience yeah. to be watching that with their brain turned on. Oh, yeah. And I guess just to like sort of segue into another one of the things that we wanted to touch on today, which is why are YA romances doing so good at the romance thing Mm -hmm. right now? Where some adult romances, there's a lot of good adult romances out there, but there is also a huge problem in adult romance that people are starting to talk about, which is the over-reliance on tropes, mm-hmm. um, where even now some books are actually just being marketed as their tropes. Like this is an enemies to lovers with this rating on the spicy scale. Whereas when you're a young adult novel, for the most part, you don't have a spicy scale. Yeah. And while there are tropes, they they don't market them as tropes. They are just like, oh, we have to focus on the story because we don't get to add in a sex scene midway through this story or towards the end of the story that everyone's just going to fight to get through. We have to actually tell this romantic story in a way that is believable and not relatable, but like just relays an actual romantic story where if you're just trying to check off trope boxes you're not doing that well, as much creation by algorithm all over again yeah and the <laughs> dear listener we're recording this the the week after like the first week of the penguin random house <sighs> department of justice trial so like i'm thinking a lot about publishing as an industry yes and profit margins etc and you know part of the problem i think is you've got publishing houses who are like we can boil it down to tropes. We can we can let the algorithm do the marketing so that we don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. And then we can blame our, our mid-list authors when they don't sell right. and not sign them. And instead, you know, promote splashy blockbusters or nothing, which is just... I know clearly all you Penguin Random House, Simon & Schuster executives are listening. And yeah. I would like to say to you right now directly, stop it. Yeah. Also, you guys can talk around the TikTokification of publishing, but Lord. we know what you are not we saying. Know. I was definitely reading the live thread about oh what's going on in that case because I am old and boring and mm-hmm. these yep. are the things that I find entertaining. But they're yeah. also deeply relevant to our jobs. They are very deep. Like, it's so... If you think about, if you spend any time on TikTok, if you spend any time in book talk, how the people who have those accounts talk about these books, they talk about them in tropes. Mm -hmm. They talk about them in spicy scales. They talk about them, you know, in a lot of these aspects that don't really tell you, like, this is a good story. Well, like The story, the character development. Some of them do. Yeah. I don't want to... For me, as someone who reads a lot of queer fiction, I'm not on TikTok, but a lot of times you will sort of get the the pitch of like, oh, it's gay. What else could you want? So you're going to have to tell me what it's about. And like the reason that I haven't read the Gideon the Ninth books yet, even though I hear they are quite exquisite, is because no one has yet been able to tell me more than lesbian necromancers. What more could you want? And the answer is, well, I don't know, because like I have some specific hangups about like fantasy involving dead people. So Mm -hmm. you're going to have to tell me more. The fact that there are just lesbians in it isn't going to completely sell me, even though I hear it's an incredible series and i will probably read it one day but again like the depth of what i've heard i don't really hear much beyond representation though which at the beginning yes it is very exciting yes it's extremely exciting Mm -hmm. actually but just like with the princess and the frog when you get it and you are a frog Mm -hmm. for the entire movie Mm -hmm. nearly up until the last 
10, five to 10 minutes, you have to kind of step back and say, I love it for the fact that I got this moment. But what did I actually get? Right. What yeah. substance was there? And I kind of wish that as a collective, because we can do this, we would move past the, okay, I'm just representation as being present mm-hmm. rather than representation as actually having a fulfilling story right. and things of that nature. Because the, the great thing, the thing that I think is important like from a queer reader perspective both in YA and in adult publishing is it like that helps with futurity like mm-hmm. there are queer kids out there who have a difficult time imagining their future mm-hmm. if they don't grow up in a place with a lot of queer adults that give them examples I mean this happened to me I didn't know a bisexual adult till I was in college mm-hmm. and like frankly that explains a lot and and so it, it, you know in that case the pr- the presence is very important but it reminds me what my Shakespeare professor at Wayne State told me as we were talking about like academic research and sort of the waves of historical literary discovery and everything she's like the the first sort of wave is always like the discovery like here it is mm-hmm. you know here are the records of black people in england in the early modern era mm-hmm. like here is a book that is just like here they are mm-hmm. and then the next wave is deeper into like you have to get beyond just the descriptive here it is right right and move into what does it mean what was life like mm-hmm. what does this tell us how does this influence literature right why have things been lost like you have to start asking questions and digging deeper mm-hmm. and i think that the sort of book talk algorithm approach very much stalls out at here it is right well okay but and- like in some cases, here it's been for a yeah, decade. Right, right. So, yeah. And this also, once again, leads me into, I'm way more put together today than I thought I would be on this little sleep. Because right. once that, red button, once that right. red button turned on. Because this also leads me into the Bridgerton effect. Yes. In which the show gives you representation mm-hmm. and it tries to add the representation into the plot in a way that I'm not entirely sold on. But when the people, so this is what happened because I was still working at a bookstore when Bridgerton first dropped. Like it's an album. Why do I keep doing that? Well, but that's how Netflix (laughs) does stuff. Right. So beautiful man. There's a picture of Reggae Jean Page on the screen right now. Yeah. Beautiful man plays a character who in the book is white. When the show came out, They did reprints of the books with the cast pictures as the covers. However, when you open the book to its actual contents, the character that he plays is still very much a white man. Those those books are white people as far as the eye can see. Right. And literally every single one. So you have people who are watching this show who are like, oh, I'm being fed one thing. And I mean, I watched season one. It was tasty food. Like, if you don't think about it too hard. If you don't think about the sexual assault plot line. Yes. Another thing that, God, don't get me started on those books. This is why I didn't read the books. Um, And they could have taken that out of the show. And they decided to keep it. Yeah, we're probably going to watch. Which is why I won't actually be watching the show again. Content warning. I was literally not able to move when I was watching it. Uh, But I quit on the first season because I was enraged. Yeah. So second season, there's this fun phenomena happening where we have this Asian actress who is playing the lead role. I believe she's Indian, but I do not want to. Okay. She's Tamil. Okay. Thank you. And once again, talking about relatable, did you know that there was like a sect of people who were like, I can't really get into season two because our lead is now, they weren't, they weren't saying the quiet part out loud, but the basic gist is the lead is now a brown woman. Mm -hmm. They can't relate to her anymore. But in season one, when you had your lead, who was a white woman, they were, everyone was all for it. And the wild thing is, like, I I hated season one and talked a lot about how much I hated season one. Mm -hmm. I watched season two in two days. Yeah. Objectively better written. Objectively better written and, like... deviates from the book quite a bit from what I understand, but once again, I'm not reading them. But... That's that's the problem with just trying to I mean, don't get me wrong, I would like the actress cast in damn near everything. Mm-hmm. I've cussed so much today, oh my god. That's but okay. <laughs> but 
that's the problem with just like the boom, here's representation. Because even when you do that, these actors in these portrayals, uh, these adaptations, in a way get shafted by the fact that the character that they are portraying was not originally intended from for them in any way shape or form whatsoever they were modified to suit them more but they were at their crux written for white people right right (laughs) and that in a way kind of in my opinion i guess i'm going to be controversial it kind of cheapens it for me quite a bit well and certainly there's no so the the heroine of season two is Indian and there's no discussion at all like in the first season I also agree that I was unimpressed unconvinced by sort of how they decided to hand wave the racial politics of the black characters and they didn't even try it all in season two because like guys what is uh, what is Great Britain doing in India right at this point in time bad things oh, and and so man. and so and, and <laughs> yeah okay you choose to just completely sort of put it to the side and not think about it at all but I think about the romance novels I've read that do engage with that. Like KJ Charles has one, I think it's an unseen attraction that's set later in the 19th century. But one of the heroes is Indian and like, there's a lot of backstory about how he ended up in the UK as this sort of illegitimate son of this aristocratic English family who was living in India for bad reasons. Mm-hmm. And... I'm just like, that's just so much more satisfying to me than not talking about it at all. I mean, I mean, I say this as someone who is not Indian. Right. I'm seeing this interesting delineation between the, is this relatable, which is maybe what a publisher asks, mm-hmm, and the, mm-hmm. the, is this relatable debate, and the, who is this for debate. Mm-hmm. And I think there's like a slight difference between those questions. Yes. Going on here. And tell me if, like, this puts you on the spot or just isn't, like, the right type of question. Did you feel like the first season of Bridgerton was for you? So I will explain to you both the circumstances under which I watched the first season of Bridgerton, which was under duress. I was Uh getting my hair braided and the woman braiding my hair was just like, have you seen this yet? Um, For those of you who don't know, if a black woman is getting her hair braided, that usually takes hours. So I was literally stuck in a chair for hours <laughs> watching episodes of this show. I had zero intent of watching it uh-huh. um, outside of that moment, which is why I had to continue after the assault scene that was kept Ew. in the show. Yeah, I was just like, wow. That's I am, when I turned it off. I'm like, hmm, I am being held captive. That's probably part of the reason why, even though I know a lot about season two, I haven't gotten the chance to dive into it yet because I'm still reassessing the trauma. That's fair. That's <laughs> but, very fair. So I definitely did a lot of nose wrinkling at some of the way. I have issues with the way that the Duke's father was represented. Yes. There, I don't toss the word problematic around, but who that was problematic. Um, the way that they once again explained how black people have been elevated in society Oh, boy. Especially when you watch how the queen is treated by her husband throughout the show because Mm -hmm. he's dealing with, you know, memory loss and, you know. Some breaks with reality. Yes. So when I called it tasty food earlier, it's pretty. It's the actors are really, really good actors. Yes. And sometimes when you put a really good actor in a not so great role they will transform it mm-hmm. into a way that is very palatable. But is tasty nourishing sometimes? No. Right. No. It was like eating a bag of Cheetos when you're really hungry. A bag of Cheetos with questionable We're like politics. Half, like you bought a super size bag of Cheetos and then you opened it and half of the bag was just air. Right. But yeah. you're too hungry to care. Right. That is how I would describe it. And I mean, Bridgerton is also still extremely wealthy and extremely straight. Mm -hmm. And so for me, there is 
There is little that is subversive about it. Also, there's a lot of baiting in first season with Mm. one of the brothers in particular. Oh my God, Benedict Bridgerton is a bisexual man. And I don't know if they know they have written a bisexual man. But they most 100% wrote a bisexual man. Luke, whatever your last name is, thank you for your service. Like, that, it... I know, I know they're going to pair up with a woman. I know it in my heart. I think I maybe read the book and have forgotten it. But like, oh my God, I need that man to kiss a dude. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. They just, me and Bridgerton got a lot to work out. There's a lot to work out. Or even like Eloise. That's a woman attracted woman if ever I saw one. Oh my goodness. Like, it's just. And see, this is the thing is that like, I can I know where to go to find the books that aren't gonna bait me that are gonna be like oh yes this man is hanging around queer coded artists because he's queer and he wants to kiss another man who is an artist and I'm like yes thank you book that has not lied to me you know or just there's less historical sapphic romances than I would like although there are mm-hmm. more coming up so thank you for that publishing but you know, it's it's when I think about the effect that Bridgerton is having on romance, I suppose I sort of think about it the way that I feel about like Phantom of the Opera as an introduction to musical theater. Mm-hmm. I enjoy Phantom of the Opera. Is it good? Irrelevant to this question. <laughs> Do I like it? Usually, yes. And, you know, it wasn't my intro to musical theater, but it's a lot of people's intro to musical theater. Mm-hmm. And so it was mine. Yeah, and I, I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with that. I get annoyed when people don't go beyond that. Mm-hmm. And so for everyone who is finally reading a romance novel because they've enjoyed Bridgerton, welcome. We're very happy to have you. Hi. Yes. And and in some cases, like the Bridgerton books are a very classic example of United States romance publishing at a certain point. Right. Mm-hmm. It is a certain point that I personally am tired of. Right. And I'm glad that we're 20 years past. And right. I don't think the books have aged well. Mm-hmm. I've read at least two of them. I might have just noped out of Benedict's book because by that point I was bored. Right. We're inviting everyone who's starting to watch Bridgerton to this table yeah. to basically start yeah. asking the same questions we're asking. And we're, we're not just, saying you're yes. wrong we're if not... you enjoyed it. Like I said, Absolutely. season two, two days, Jonathan Bailey, you understood the assignment. Yeah. yeah. That man knows what to do with his face. I mean, um, once again, I like Cheetos. Yeah. Like, sure. Sometimes I'm just like, I just want a bag of them. Mm-hmm. But also I do like nourishing full meals too. And we don't like Cheetos with an assault plot line. Yes. Well, it's I, never, ever discussed. But the reason I brought you here to the table and brought that up specifically is that was my concern that people's limited perception of Bridgerton mm-hmm. becomes interchangeable with their perception of romance yeah and i'm definitely concerned by that which which the bombshell is going to bring up that i teased roddy with earlier is that and i don't know if i ever even brought this up the last episode but like a whole other element we should get to possibly in part three is the um actually we could because it'd be topical is the the Hallmark Christmas holiday romance. The rom com. Okay, let's talk about it. Okay, because I was going to talk about rom coms per se too, which we could kind of move into that, you know. <laughs> so, um, Hallmark, I am really glad that you figured out that people other than white people exist. Um, I know that was a recent discovery for you. And I know that it was even more of a recent discovery that we exist in capacities to not just be someone's best friend. Wait, there's uh, there's other people other than Candace Cameron Bure? Isn't it a shock? It's a shock. So, um, yeah. Did I even say your name right? I'm sorry. I I don't even (laughs) (laughs) know. So, (laughs) I would binge watch those movies sometimes because... Why not? I was also coming back home from college in which, I mean, to toot my own horn, I was dealing with a lot of deep philosophical texts. And sometimes you just need to turn your brain off. Sure. That's why I started reading romance novels. But let's talk about the formula. Mm. Person, wealthy, lives in city, moves or comes to small town to visit home, close a deal, close the Christmas cookie shop that everyone loves. I don't know. Also, usually a woman who is on the borderline of becoming 
some bit a spinster yes or also like this will be the thing that makes or breaks her career that too or sometimes it's a guy and he's just an arrogant jerk and you know but she's also like always 31 and still not married yes it's that whole thing or just broke up with her or still dating equally arrogant i just broke up with my boyfriend of four years i thought he was gonna be the one (sighs) now i'm gonna go over to whatever goes to small town meets flannel mcflannel yes um and you know there yeah has a beard possibly a pet typically a dog it's basically reese willishman's sweet home alabama just with christmas yes and at first they clash, but then they start to fall in love and she realizes that Flannel's Christmas cookie shop is where she's wanted to be all along. And they're gonna steal this plot. Yes, they are. <laughs> so you know, she there might be a time where she goes back to the city and is like, I can't be here. You know, I could be making gingerbread right now. And there of course there was like a quote unquote breakup that led to that moment and she's gonna go back mm-hmm. and she's gonna grovel mm-hmm. and flannel is going to present her with her own flannel shirt and they will run that dying cookie store That's together right. and it's gonna be fine and you know what makes me mad this is the plot of doc hollywood which is a good movie <laughs> <laughs> that is a film with michael j fox in which instead of a woman in the in the city to country Mm -hmm. it's michael j fox Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. a lot of it has to do with like him learning that like people who live in the sticks are interesting well-rounded people Mm -hmm. and so for me the thing is that like i'm mad because this has been done well Mm -hmm. and so to watch it like be done bad and to death and with bad gender politics right Mm -hmm. makes me sad also there's always that scene where like the city lady can't find like internet connections because apparently anyone not living in the middle of the city doesn't have wi-fi and they like don't make it a commentary about the limited access of broadband in the united states no no. Of course not. This is a Hallmark movie. We got cookies to get to. No, <laughs> like, right. it's all it's all because she's a workaholic and she's got to stay connected. But here's the thing: I think Hallmark knows that their movies have become a kind of joke, and they leaned into it for a while. Mm-hmm. But then they were also like, "Oh, maybe we can start making slightly more diverse movies mm-hmm. with characters that aren't just you know brunette white men and blonde." Or sometimes brunette right. white women right. and, you know. Gotta have different hair colors so you can tell them apart. It's, I'm just shaking my head yeah. because right. it just... Right, and that's the thing say. is that Bridgerton can now be summarized into a three and a half Saturday Night Live skit. Or Hallmark can be parodied in a 59 second TikTok by people just riffing the hell out of them. Yes. And I always just worry that like... It's given romance a bad name. You know who's not giving romance a bad name? How many? How long have we been We made recording? it a whole 42 minutes. Okay, because I'm going to say her name finally. Miss Beverly Jenkins. Heck yeah. Because let's actually, like, let's talk about it. Sure. Because that is well done historical and also some contemporary romance. Right. Um, there's, you can't parody her work. No. Nope. You cannot. There is no patchwork representation excuse Mm -hmm. in her stories because she's going to give you her research for what she found out about (laughs) french pirates guys i'm reading captured which you may remember from our very first romance episode roddy like gushing about and it's exactly like obviously trust roddy Mm -hmm. but like also guys it's so good Mm -hmm. it's It's so so good good. at one point they straight up like steal a whole plantation yes and that's in the that's in the prologue and Whoa. it's not it's not done in a like how do i want to put it it has meat to it, it like she's not oh my God. actually she's not just kind of like writing it off the page like oh yeah and then they stole like it's like no this is how they did it mm-hmm. and then this is the settlement they established and then this is this is how their society functions and things like that and she does that every single time and it stakes it, like that's that's stakes. what it is and one of my favorite things about historical fiction the reason I love reading queer historical fiction, the reason I'm loving Beverly Jenkins is that when you have those kinds of external stakes, you don't have to put a whole lot of conflict into the romantic relationship. It can be about two people who meet each other and right away are like, you. Right. 
and commit to each other. And what they're working on is fighting the outside forces that want them to be apart. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoy that kind of plot. I find it very satisfying. And it doesn't mean there's no tension. And it doesn't mean that the whole question of like, how are they going to be together isn't relevant. But it's not... It's not necessarily about the two of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because romance doesn't happen in a vacuum. Literally, we live in a society. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's so compelling. And that's the kind of thing that, say, Bridgerton is completely missing. They, me and third act breakups are like mortal enemies at this point. You because have a really they, good reason. They, and that's the thing. Because they, if they break up for something really, like, vapid then it's just like why are they together yeah and then if they break up for something that's actually like serious it's like why would you get back together together. and it's very difficult and i understand the challenge of wanting to write a well done third act breakup Mm -hmm. i get it it's a very easy like trope once again to follow but once again as mary graham said you don't need it Third act breakups are not that common in real life. (laughs) There are, as Mary Graham said, outside conflicts that are realistic without being too realistic. Of course, it's romance. You know, you want to get to your happily ever after. You're not trying to think too hard about real life. But there are ways to write in conflict that don't involve a ham-fisted breakup Mm -hmm. scene. Well, I'm even thinking about Cat Sebastian's Two Rogues Make a Right, which I've been rereading mm-hmm. via audiobook recently and there is it's not quite a third act breakup but it is a third act the two heroes are briefly like living apart like mm-hmm. one of them is convalescing in the countryside the other one goes to london and at one point they're both like i hate this mm-hmm. and so they immediately move back in together mm-hmm. you know yeah this novel takes place in the 19th century <laughs> um you know and she also like set out to write one of the heroes in that book has consumption like tuberculosis mm-hmm. he's just not a well person right um but she was like you know what i am going to i'm going to set out to make my readers believe in a happily ever after mm-hmm. for a man with a terminal chronic illness mm-hmm. yeah and she did it and also i did read a book recently that had a third act breakup that did not go the way that most third act breakups go and that wasn't that the characters had a misunderstanding and they decided like not decided they had a misunderstanding argued and broke up it was actually that these characters i'm not going to say the book because this is technically a spoiler but every conflict that came up these characters talked through it Mm. the reason why they had their third act breakup wasn't because of like technically external conflict it was the female lead going hey i have a lot of things that i need to work on for myself that allow me to build up some sort of independence because right now i feel like i am overly dependent on you and the things that we have accomplished together and i need to just focus on me for a minute and the male lead was like i understand where you're coming from were they miserable without each other yeah but they needed it was well established up to that point that they did actually need that time away from each other to then be able to come back to one another as healthier people for one another and i was like oh i'm kind of sold on this right that's refreshing they're actually being grown-ups yes they were being adults i was like holy crap give me more of this which all too often i imagine there could be conflict brewed within a romantic connection inside of a book that is born out of petty or juvenile yes. selfish. Oh, it's yeah. always just like a... The, it's like the grown-ups in romance novels are acting like the teens and the teens and the YAs are acting like adults. Yeah, like, you know that, like, trope in teen movies? I'm specifying teen movies where, like, you know girl and guy are going out, be it real or fake relationship, and, like, she stumbles upon him kissing another girl but she didn't see that the other girl like jumped on him first and so she runs away in tears and i've seen that movie yes we've all seen that movie but imagine that but with like people who pay taxes (laughs) and it's just like (laughs) people who sit in the house of lords yes and it's just like it's like no wonder britain's such a shambles if you people are running the country down with the aristocracy just talk just talk i thought we had something we made cookies together but i saw you (laughs) kissing another flannel 
flannelly flannel is gonna haunt me and forever. yet she is like this 31 year old woman from yes. the city who has a job yeah, because and wi-fi here's the thing flannel's ex-girlfriend runs like the town diner or right. something like that right. like oh my god this is so see mm-hmm. this is the why it makes you so and bad. Her name is Dina. Yes. Can we talk about rom coms? Yes. So and the noise that the, I'm the making, decline of. Well, uh, is it a decline? Is, is it, it a bastardization of the term? Right. Like so, brief foray into Ted Lasso. I promise this will become relevant. In season two, I'm, I'm here for it. In season two of Ted Lasso. My favorite episode is the one that references all the romantic comedy films. Mm. And you've got Ted saying, I'm a communist, a rom communist. <laughs> and I believe in rom communism, which is that everything's going to work out okay. Because that's sure. the whole premise of romantic comedy films and also mm-hmm. romance novels mm-hmm. is that like we're in, we're in the dark moment. We're in the bit in the middle where you're like, oh my God, how's it going to end happily? And in their case, it's because they can't win football games. Right. But, um, but thinking about the rom-coms that are referenced in that episode, the rom-coms I have seen, um, and I'm very picky. I don't like You've Got Mail. Tom Hanks Ooh. is the villain of that. Absolutely. That absolutely. I mean, I'm shaking my head in in agreement. Yeah. Little, little footnote for the. Listeners, uh, one of the co-writers, Poor Persuasion, was one of the writers of My Best Friend's Wedding, which is a whole other rom com The only... <laughs> Roddy is angry. The, I, I have to say, the only rom-com from the 80s that I've seen that I think stands up is When Harry Met Sally. Um, the gold standard. And because, like, that's a story about a man who stops seeing women as sex objects and starts seeing them as people. Right. And that's always relevant. But on the side of it, there is an actual romance happening between Carrie Fisher. Yeah, well, that too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But the rom-com novel, I tend to drop things like little hot potatoes now when people say, oh, it's a rom-com, because A, I don't believe it's actually going to be funny, mm-hmm. and B, so many of them have cancer plots mm. or like dead siblings or parents or right. whoever plots right. and like i'm not saying that i don't want romance novels that engage with grief at all i've read mm. some romance novels that are extremely eloquent on the subject of grief however i want to know going in that i'm in for a high angst time i think tone is so tricky and don't tell me it's a comedy if yeah. it's not funny yes so i think talia hibbert does rom-com well i'm I'm like racking my brain for like who i actually laugh out loud at and the brown sisters trilogy which i have talked about before i literally was just talking to mary graham about this trilogy Mm -hmm. before it has it's like moments of like this is serious Mm -hmm. this is we are handling a serious topic and they don't try to mix the this is funny as hell moments into that like both of those moments get to stand on their own within the greater story being told and that is why I love those books, because, yeah, I, too, find, like, rom-com, and I'm like, is it actually funny? Oh, the other rom-com that's made me laugh recently are the ones with the really long titles that I've been telling you about. Oh, like that time I got drunk and saved a demon? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the other one is that time I got drunk and yeeted a love potion at a werewolf, which she's telling you the setup right there. Yeah actually funny yeah <laughs> that's um drunk and saved a demon just checking just checking well and also for me alice clayton writes yes. funny books like nuts and cream of the crop which mm-hmm. both take place in like upstate new york and involve farmers markets like legitimately i think humorous books mm-hmm. yes um or even i just finished um the lady's guide to fortune hunting which Roddy, I was telling you some very positive things about. I wouldn't call it a rom-com, but I would call it a very funny romance novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, funny in the way that I find Georgette hired to be funny, except without all the anti-Semitism and classism, mm-hmm. which are not the parts I find funny. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, like, <laughs> classic-ish romance, mm-hmm. but less horrid. I'm gonna. I'm going to now deem something that I call the... The failure to launchization of book covers. Oh. Where it 
which is a, a movie, I think, from the early 2000s with Matthew McConaughey and Sarah Jessica Parker, where it's just like, look at these two goofballs. They're probably going to fall in love, but what kind of antics are they going to get into? And that is the vibe I get from some, to bring it back to the covers. Yeah, Those cartoony, covers, illustrated, Ugh. bright, day-glow colored covers are like, well, this looks like a romp. Look at this. Look at this guy's, he's got a failure to launch. And that only works sometimes if that's actually what's happening in your story. Where the characters are smirking at you from the yes. cover is what I'm talking about. And and then, but you'll get these, this is once again, the <laughs> illustrated covers because you'll get that. Yeah. And then you will get your heart broken. Yeah. Exactly. If it, you'll get happily ever after because if there's no happily what, ever like after, one happy of her siblings for, is no. dead. It's not a romance, yeah, yeah. It's, but like, Jeez, like, I know. Stop. Right. <laughs> and for me, I mean, it just brings it back to the the algorithm, mm-hmm. the idea of like, ooh, we can put a quirky cover on it mm-hmm. and call it a rom com, and it doesn't matter if it's actually a romp, and it doesn't matter if it's actually funny. Yeah, because I mean, I see pretty covers all the time. Yeah. I handle pretty much all the romance that's been coming in here. Pretty covers all the time, but do you really know what you're getting into? And, and like, this is I love you, mass market paperbacks. And I will never apologize for my love of the dude's where dude wears my shirt cover. Right, Nighthawk. It's a gorgeous cover. But even just, I put some romance novels on hold for myself yesterday because mm-hmm. I was like, I need a happy read. I need mm-hmm. some. Mm-hmm. And I like women in pretty dresses is what's coming in for me. Mm-hmm. And I can, I think, make some pretty educated guesses about what's going to be in them, what the heat level is right. going to be, and. That they're probably not going to stomp all over my heart. I will say, spoiler alert, since I know that you're about to dive into that again. Yeah. I would say that I haven't read the second book by Olivia Date, but mm-hmm. I feel like that is a good um, illustrated cover oh, that does indicate what you're going to get in the yeah. book. For for spoiler alert and all the feels. Yes. Spoiler yes. alert. And the author is Olivia Dade. Um, yes. Well done, illustrated covers that I feel actually match the tone of the book because yeah. that does not always happen. Um, or um, the uh, Will Darling Adventures by KJ Charles, also illustrated covers, and like this gorgeous kind of art deco style that matches the era the books are set in. Mm-hmm. You see Will with his emotional support knife on all of them. Like, again, that tells me I'm in for like a super gay, pulpy... 1920s good time but some of the rest of you i don't know like honestly at this point sometimes the illustrated cover will turn me away from a book because like you said the failure to launchification mm-hmm. oh yeah <laughs> ladies guide to fortune hunting also has an illustrated cover but i think it's a very evocative one right well anyway that will have to cover it for now because <sighs> we're in a library and well, we got to go do library stuff but uh, why not Why not plan a part three? Because there's some things we left on the table that we'll come back to. But I think we, we got some great recommendations in here as well, which we'll have in the show notes. We really emphasized we want sincerity. We want grown-up, frank discussions in our books. And we don't uh, like manipulative tropes. And yes. we want the audience to be trusted. Yes. And we Both. want you in. We want more yeah. audience. Come yes, on, join us. Yes, um, The water's fine. Yes. <laughs> this has been a little too quiet yet another episode and this has been romance part two with roddy and mary graham thank you both thank you jeff as of always course. remember to rate review and subscribe to this podcast and tell your friends about us remember to shout out the friends of the ferndale library who made this podcast po- possible and a shout out to john duffy who gives us our music and a second shout out again to our two great guests roddy and mary graham more information in the show notes and we'll be back next week with more thanks for listening 